Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Michelle Malkin, author of the new book, Who Built That? Awe-inspiring stories of American tinkerpreneurs. Michelle is a New York Times bestselling author, nationally syndicated newspaper columnist, Fox News Channel contributor, and an entrepreneur in her own right. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Michelle, in thinking about the title of your book, Who Built That?, I was reminded of, of the various quotes out there about global warming being the cause of terrorism. And that, and that might, be, uh, might not make sense initially, but my rationale is that the left draws these tenuous links between things for political purposes, thinking that the American people are stupid. And, th- and they always argue that no one basically is responsible for their own actions, their own skills, ambitions, and ideas. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you see this refrain in so many areas of of public discourse that I think sometimes we just become completely immunized to it. And the you didn't build that moment for a for a fleeting second anyway during the 2012 campaign did seem to stir um, and agitate of a, a, a hidden demographic out there, small business people, um, in independent um, entrepreneurs who really chafed and, um, and, and, and publicly fought back against that. And I think that the dissatisfaction with how the Republican Party, and in particular Mitt Romney, uh, failed to, to really seize that moment and, and convert it into what should have been a, a, a victory for um, individualism over collectivism, um, I think that dissatisfaction is what drove me to take that phrase and perform a little bit of writer's jujitsu, <laughs> you know, to, to, to sort of get to the heart of why it is um, it, 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 it didn't resonate with uh, a much larger um, swath of the American public. And part of that is probably is rhetorical. It's when you talk about job creators, quote unquote, that doesn't have as much of an impact on people as telling real individual stories. Shows like The Profit, for example. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. But, th- but they show you about what it takes to build a business and that it re- these are human interest stories, but they have an impact on everyone. Yes. And, and that the individual personalities throughout American history, from the industrial age to the present, those, those compelling biographies that, that uh, really delve into the details of the, the work ethic and the, the journey that it takes to bring a successful product to market, it really is paradoxical. And I've, I've been you know, mulling this over from the time I started writing to the book, certainly um, these last couple of weeks talking about it with people. It's paradoxical because uh, on the one hand you have – even Hollywood acknowledging that not only is it entertaining, but it's certainly profitable for them to produce a show like Shark Tank, which, of course, is, is a raw celebration of you know, the quintessential, quintessential chasing of, of the American dream. And yet, you know, many of the same people behind shows like that are the ones that are forking over <laughs> their money to people like Obama, who turns around and gets on the stump um, lobbying for ever punitive taxes and demonizing the 
quote-unquote millionaires and billionaires who, in his judgment, at some point make too much money <laughs> and um, for whom he profits politically uh, to openly denigrate. It's, it's, it's very strange that, that, that we have a culture that, on the one hand, venerates um, the pursuit of, of self-interest and, and profit, and yet, on the other hand, has such an open scorn for capitalists who succeed. Yeah, and I always find it ironic when people talk about socially responsible investing or businesses that every business is good for all of society. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I just started watching um, this the TV show, uh, Netflix show, uh, Silicon Valley. Is it <laughs> Netflix or is it HBO? I, it's, I think it's where. HBO. Yeah. It's HBO. Right. Um, so I'm just catching up, and I'm, I'm just finishing up the first season. And it is so funny, that scene uh, where the Pied Piper guys are on the, on the bus um, to go work for Hooli, and this, there's a loop of this socially responsible ad of the, of the, of the CEO. Um, you know, I don't know what, what third world country he's in. He surrounds himself cynically with, with all of these poor children, and the, the business is, is not about being proud about whatever business it is they're in. They have to be proud about doing some other social good. And, you know, boy, you know, I, I remember having my eyes first opened when I, when I read my first Ayn Rand novel, right? And, and, and people, always talking about, uh, people always talk about on the right, uh, especially this, a, lot of the, a lot of the establishment right, how you have to mature and, and grow up beyond that. Paul Ryan is one of these people who's disavowed, you know, his Ayn Rand days. But, you know, I think, it, I think it's important for my kids to know and for, you know, other kids that I want to, to uh, be exposed to the ideas in the book that, yes, just, just as you said, and I've, and I've said it uh, many times over the last couple of weeks, private profit, the ability to profit, from the fruit of your mind and the fruit of your labors is in and of itself a, a public good and in the public interest. And that is certainly something that our founding fathers profoundly understood. And let's not forget, of course, that the government doesn't have any resources without the wealth that the people create, which it takes from them. <laughs> yes, that's right. Government takes, innovators and entrepreneurs make. And let there be no mistake about that, it's, it's the avowed uh, redistributor in wealth who I think has done the most to pervert, uh, you know, the, the, the American formulation for, for, for innovation. Um, and I think what's disturbed me the most about that phrase, and I've talked about this, and I think it's really important um, to point this out. That's why I excerpted the, the entire context of those you didn't, you didn't build that remark, was the, the poisonous collectivism. Uh, his open... Um, hostility and mockery where, where he says, before he said you didn't build that, you know, these people think that they work so hard. They think they're so much smarter than the rest of us. And then you really stoked the whole class resentment thing, really yanked the chains of his audience. And, uh, and, they, and they all roared in approval. And he said, he said we're, you know, there are plenty of smart people and plenty of people who work hard. And, of course, this is going to be gratifying uh, to all those people who have no aspirations uh, or who deeply resent the fact that, yes, there are people who are smarter than them and work harder. <laughs> Future Bernie Sanders supporters. Well, yeah, yeah. So this is what I'm trying to, to avert, 
because you know there's the the, the the beginning of the book is a manifesto against wealth shaming but then you know we get to these stories and by the end of course I've taken a tour um from the you know mid 1800s to the to the present and I highlight uh, a lot of the the generation of young makers and builders who are carrying on carrying on the legacy of of innovation and prosthetics in this country and some of them are, are college dropouts. Some of them are homeschooled. Uh, some of them are still in enter- elementary school. And you've got these Girl Scouts who uh, innovated a, a Lego-powered prosthetic device for uh, a little toddler who had been born with a congenital defect and didn't have a hand. And one of the little girls was quoted in her local paper in Iowa saying that uh, it was really cool that they got a patent because it meant that they had made it. And and I hope that, that her parents have taught her, and I'm trying to teach a, a whole generation of kids out there, that the patent in and of itself is such a unique um, thing in, in American history and the way that it had been initially construed uh, to guarantee the intellectual property rights for inventors and authors. And there's nothing, there was nothing like that um, in the rest of the world. And yet now, as a result of these big government and big business collusions, that patent system has been completely turned on its head by Obama and unfortunately by a lot of capitulationist Republicans. I'd, I'd like to return to patents and intellectual property in a bit because I think it's a really important point that you draw out of your book that I think is not focused on by a lot of people who are very free market oriented and, and pro-capitalist. So I'll, I'll return to that. But I wanted to ask you, before we delve into some of the specific stories in the book that maybe you like the most, you yourself have had success as an entrepreneur in building businesses and politics and the media and being really sort of a first mover in the conservative online activist movement. So how did your own experience inform your writing of this book? Uh, well, it really helped drive it. I, you know, I still can't believe after all these years that someone whose you know, parents had no political connections and, and no wealth, really, when they came here um, from a foreign land. My parents came here from the Philippines in 1970. But somehow I would ever grow up to be able to make money um, with a, a, a few ideas and with a lot of words and definitely with a little bit of luck, um, um, help from, from many individuals for sure. You know, the lesson isn't that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to refute the idea that uh, individuals don't get help in their lives. In fact, this book is largely a celebration of how, you know, through the voluntary exchanges of, of, of millions of people every single day uh, and the expansion of people's creative orbit that, that, you know that in our in our free market economy, people can pursue pretty much whatever they want, and you know you you take the risks and you take the responsibilities. Uh, and I believe that uh, you know that I'm responsible for whatever successes or failures I've I've had in, in my life. Nobody else, and certainly not the government. And um, and I think you know, especially if you are you know whatever gradation of a disruptive innovator, somebody who has an idea that people nobody had really conceived of or couldn't couldn't imagine or didn't even understand what of use it might be when you introduce it. That to me, I mean, I could identify with that in, in so many people that I that I talked about. And of course, disruptive innovators um, threaten 
you know, so many special interests. And wow, these are soap opera dramas that that I that I talk about the the the, the uh, you know the real threats they faced um, to their families and you know even to their lives. Of course, it's it's always the incumbents who are in power who are most threatened by the radicals, and and that's a kind of interesting another paradox that the book draws out in reality is that it's the free thinker, creative, radical, revolutionary type. And usually oftentimes when you look at psychological profiles of the most successful entrepreneurs, they're people who, you know, are very antisocial and outside the mainstream that are the ones that end up being the most successful. And of course, it's the incumbents, it's the people who are in power that want to keep them down by, for example, lobbying for regulations that keep out that very competition. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think that this distinction is often lost among people who hate capitalism of any kind. Um, but to lump together, uh, you know, the so-called vulture capitalists, the, the crony capitalists who believe in rigging the game and enlisting government uh, at every step of the way, versus the ethical capitalists, uh, the people who want to get government out of the way so they can p- pursue uh, their products, their innovation, their patents, uh, and to do it as long as they want and to make as much money as they want and to hire who they want. Uh, and, you know, um, there were, were incredible anecdotes that I told um, that talk about the, the, the protectionism that you're talking about, the, the incumbents. And in the case of John Roebling, who was uh, the, 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 you know, the architect behind the Brooklyn Bridge and many other bridges across the country, when he came up with the idea of wire rope, who did he threaten the most? Well, it was the hemp rope industry. And <laughs> he wanted to test and demonstrate his project. And I and describe uh, this harrowing incident where it was the, the morning of the test and somebody in the hemp industry had sabotaged and cut the rope right before the demonstration. And, uh, you know, it threatened uh, his, his entire career, his professional career, his reputation. And uh, he prayed for a second chance. He got it. And that's why we still see the Brooklyn Bridge standing today. <laughs> that's a good illustration, I think, in one episode of what regulations do to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's also the nasty collusion of many of the incumbents, um, along with, you know, the lying, smearing media. Glenn Beck had um, obviously had uh, highlighted the, the, some of the, the fights and battles in the war of the currents between Thomas Edison and the New York Times and the trusts on the one hand and Westinghouse, George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla on the other. Um, I chose another sort of angle from the Westinghouse-Tesla alliance um, by talking about the, their partnership leading up to uh, the development of the Niagara Falls hydroelectric plant. And again, I think it's, it's a good case, because whether you're talking about the Brooklyn Bridge or the Niagara plant, these are large things that are considered you know, public goods, public infrastructure. But every piece of public infrastructure is a tale of uh, the risks and the failures and the successes of countless, unfortunately nameless, faceless capitalists that are not taught in public schools. If you were going to pick one of the stories in this book and you chronicle everything from Maglite to 
bottle caps. And, you know, we take for granted, incidentally, all of these things, which end up creating billions of dollars in wealth and making life much easier, which makes us more productive and, and on and on. It's a very virtuous kind of circle. If you were going to pick one story to tell someone on the left that might open up a wedge and kind of open up their minds to the beauty of capitalism and how it benefits all of society, what story would you pick and tell us about it? Wow, that is that is really hard. You know, I've been highlighting Anthony McLeica, uh, who founded Mag Instruments in the 1970s, who came here with nothing um, from a tiny little island called Zlaren off of Croatia, uh, to to illustrate and try to really reach across the aisle because um, this is a man who you know continues to inspire me. Hires. American workers and American workers only refuses to outsource um, so much so that uh, when it looked like all that he had left to purchase was a cheap Chinese part, he refused to do it, built the machines himself um, in order to do it in-house, and who really defines the American dream as, as for being for American businesses and American workers. I think that's something that, that definitely resonates across ideological lines, and also, you know, the idea of, of, of a work ethic that drives him, that even though he's 84 years old, has, has no interest in, in taking a vacation, <laughs> I mean, even to this day. And that kind of obsession, you know, that, that kind of singular-mindedness, obviously people appreciate, you know, we, we see that uh, in, in the popularity of, of, of shows like uh, Shark Tank. And um, I think that the story in itself is just a, like a compelling drama. Um, so I've been talking about that, but I've been thinking about this too, about you know who else would be a model for uh, you know people on all sides of the aisle to illustrate just the nobility of social mobility and how that is so uniquely American. Um, I talk about uh, these two glassmakers, Edward Libby and Michael Owens. And Michael Owens used to be a union agitator. He had uh, been a glass boy um, in West Virginia and um, actually agitated against uh, the guy who became his partner, Edward, Edward Libby, Libby, who is sort of your archetypal industrialist. And, uh, and the fact that he had an opportunity to introduce innovation and had the backing and support of um, Edward Libby all along the way, you know, even when Edward Libby's investors um, had bailed on him, just shows you that, you know, we don't see this today because there's such a, an animosity and a cleavage between big labor and capitalism. It's, it's too bad. It's a shame. What can, you have a chapter in your book, it's titled I Toilet Paper. Uh, what can toilet paper teach us about capitalism? And tell us a little about the inspiration for that chapter. And I won't give it away, but I'll just say that every person in America should read I Pencil by Leonard Reed. Yes, that was my inspiration. And uh, I remember reading this early on as a, a young conservative, the, this essay that used a pencil to illustrate the magic of not only the mundane you know, just this lowly little uh, consumer product, um, but also as an illustration that there's no federal edict, no central command in the world that could produce a pencil. Uh, that, in fact, it, it, it takes many, many people around the world 
pursuing their own self-interests, whether it's the rubber makers in India who supply the rubber for the eraser or the timber mill operator in Oregon uh, who doesn't give a hoot about <laughs> the people in India who's simply pursuing his own profit, and somehow they all magically are able to cooperate to produce one single pencil. And so I adapted that concept with the role of toilet paper, which is just as mundane and, and just as lowly as a pencil. And I walk through the entire sort of family tree of capitalists who help produce um, toilet paper. It's funny because this exact chapter was the, was the target of sneering mockery by the book reviewer at the Washington Post this week, who engaged in a lot of literal bathroom humor um, when he was trying to mock my book, and uh, all of his liberal journalist friends all ate it up. Um, and I think that's quite a shame, and it, and it actually kind of illustrates exactly why I wrote this book, because I am trying to immunize, immunize kids against that kind of smugness. I mean, so out of touch. I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's a miracle when you hold up a, a, a roll of paper and you think of all the way back to... Uh, you know, to the revolutionary age, the colonial times when our founding fathers were the first investors in paper mills um, all up and down the, um, Pennsylvania who, you know, had no imagination, no vision of thinking that, you know, when you're sitting in the bathroom that they were helping you. They didn't care about us. They didn't care about our backsides. They cared about their own bottom lines, and that's a good thing. Well, and maybe the people at the Washington Post aren't particularly fond of talking about paper because the newspaper, physical newspaper businesses' struggles are directly tied to uh, the lack of people wanting to buy newspapers anymore. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and and I think, you know, one one real takeaway from eye toilet paper, eye pencil, anything else which shows you how you pull together all of these different processes and resources and no one person's coordinating it, but it all comes together, is that that really undermines all elements of central planning and, and government's role in an economy in and of itself. You know, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal recently, and they were talking about the Federal Reserve. And without getting into the specifics of it, they talk about how the Fed has a computer system that has thousands of variables or hundreds of variables in it. And they tweak the different assumptions to see what the right interest rate should be. And when you think about iPencil or iToilet paper, it shows you that no one person and no one computer could ever figure out what the ideal price of anything is, whether it's an interest rate or an iPad or any other product. It is people working together and through, you know, sort of spontaneous harmony to, to speak to something like Hayek, spontaneous order. That's yes. how the world works. Yes, yes. And um, I, I love the invocation of Hayek because, of course, um, the other concept here is the, is the idea of the fatal conceit, you know, that these central planners know all. And 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 to your point, it's not merely that the, these people can can, uh, can that they fail to to know what the actual the proper price of anything is, but what the proper use of anything is. And I think that the chapter I did a, a chapter two on the Wizards of Cool, um, the Carrier Corporation, Willis Carrier and Irving Lyle, and their band of of brothers uh, who brought these massive innovations in. Um, and cooling, and then eventually heating um, to America. 
And when they initially started out, it was really to, to help a, a print company that was having problem with humidity uh, in New York City. It was, you know, kind of in the middle of one of these um, early uh, 20th century heat waves, and the ink was running, and so they needed somebody to solve that problem. Well, you know, eventually the air conditioning and the coolant systems that they introduced really are responsible for Hollywood and the movie industry, malls, um, the entire development of the Southwest and uh, the the South, for that matter, on the East Coast, um, hospitals, uh, the, the vaccines wouldn't exist um, without uh, a lot of their innovative breakthroughs. But they never met, they could have not imagined when they embarked on that journey that it would lead to all of those things. And it shows you that the, the contrast between just the utter lack of vision that government bureaucrats have and what's possible when you give individual profit seekers the opportunity to, to you know, pursue their, their ends as far as they can go. And, of course, one more takeaway from this is that the beauty in a free market system is that ultimately it's the consumers, i.e. the American public, that decide what gets to market and at what price. And that's the difference between a thriving America and why the Soviet Union was a failure in a basket case. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been joking about the Bernie Sanders campaign launch uh, and his uh, lamenting of too many products on our shore, uh, store shelves, whether it's um, deodorant or sneakers or w whatever has raised his, his hackles this week. And, you know, the, the, the self-appointed deciders of, of wants and needs have, have always failed um, to improve and uplift the lives of, of human beings, um, whether it's the Soviet Union or, you know, present-day Venezuela. And I, I, I found it poetic that... You know, I picked uh, toilet paper, and, and here's a product that if you go look at CVS or Walgreens or Walmart or any number of stores, and I'm sure Bernie Sanders is distressed that we have too many of those as well, uh, you know, you can get it quilted, scented, unscented, whatever color in the color spectrum you want. And, you know, this is something to celebrate <laughs> because in Venezuela, there's nothing on their store shelves. <laughs> Well, and let's not forget the Soviets, when they came over here to look at America or they saw images of what our supermarkets looked like, they thought it was propaganda. They couldn't believe that that actually existed in the world. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly right. Um, and, you know, this goes back to this, this whole paradox that I've been contemplating, that on the one hand, um, you've got these mainstream shows like Shark Tank celebrating entrepreneurship and capitalism. And then on the other hand except for our circles and our part of the political spectrum, Bernie Sanders can say these, these, these things and, and, and get away with it. And, 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 and more to the point, these ideas trickle down and are Im embedded in you know, the Common Core curriculum or the AP U.S. history framework. Um, there really needs to be an antidote to that. And to the extent that, you know, everything Glenn has done and I've tried to do with this little book and, you know, all of the, the grassroots activists out there, particularly the moms um, who see the poison, you know, disseminated every single day, it's an uphill battle. That, that's a good segue into something I wanted to ask, which is that you talk about the principles that animate entrepreneurs and provide us with 
this bountiful wealth that we've been so lucky to have since the American experiment started. And so you talk about the profit motive, intellectual property rights, risk-taking, venture capital, our patent system, and also American exceptionalism. So all of those principles are basically being undermined and have been undermined for multiple generations in our schools, in our media, in all of the institutions that sort of help us socialize besides our families. So given that, is our future bright? And do you think that we're we're going to have continued technological advancement or growth given that we're killing intellectual capital in America? I, I want to be, um, you know, brutally honest about it. Um, there are days, uh, you know, after I was doing research on this book, um, and particularly when I contemplated just how radical the changes have been in the patent system, where I think it's over, it's done. We had a nice long ride, uh, and uh, thank goodness we were alive to be here, you know, at sort of the tail end of it, but what about our kids? What about our grandkids? And you think how thoroughly, you think about how thoroughly marinated, you know, this next generation of what should supply, you know, the next generation of of makers and builders, how thoroughly marinated they have been in this sort of wealth-shaming culture, Um, a culture that is, you know, more and more militantly um, and just puzzlingly anti-capitalist and and anti-American. You know, that's daunting. And yet, on the other hand, as as I pointed out, there still is sort of this this thriving um, class of makers and builders somewhere out there is equipping the, these Girl Scout troops uh, with, you know, not only the, the, the physical capital but the intellectual capital to pursue these things. Um, and so that's promising. On the other hand, I think Anthony Maglica, who I mentioned in the first chapter, warns about, you know, the, the trend of, of the outsourcing and the endangerment not only of American entrepreneurs but of, of American workers. And so I think from a public policy perspective, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tall order. It's a big plate uh, of uh, looking at education, intellectual property rights, and really just, uh, you know, making sure that uh, capitalists are not punished so much that they start, you know, going galt in, in droves. On intellectual property, you talk about how the Obama administration has been undermining or subverting that system which is enshrined in the Constitution, one of the radical things in our Constitution when the country was founded. You also have some libertarians who will argue that intellectual property is a government-created monopoly, and so it's really antithetical to a market where no one should have ownership of an idea, and I'm sort of paraphrasing their argument, but that's sort of the, you know, 30,000 foot view of it. So two questions. One, how is the Obama administration hurting intellectual property? And what do you say to those libertarians who challenge it? Yeah, um, this was actually one of the fav- my favorite um, parts of my research and writing of this book, because 
talking about patent law is just not something that you're going to see on Fox News in a, a three-minute segment. <laughs> and most people don't think of me as, as somebody who even, uh, you know, would spend more than two minutes thinking about it. But as I, you know, researched the book and highlighted all of these tinkerpreneurs for whom defense of their patent rights was so important and the securing of, you know, their first or second patents was so key um, to 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 ensuring an, a lifetime, you know, of of success in the marketplace, I really came to to appreciate just how unique our system was. And of course, Article One, Section Eight, um, explicitly spells out in a way that no other founding document of any other country did the right of of authors and inventors to essentially to to profit from their ideas for a limited time. Now, I'm not a, a legal scholar, and there's been a lot of back and forth and and um, a lot of heated discussion over how some people interpret, you know, the quote-unquote special monopoly of privilege. And so you have libertarians who think that, you know, the idea of patents is just um, com- completely anathema to limited government principles. But, you know, you can weigh both of the sides of that. But the fact is that the way that the patent system was implemented, and, and certainly in the first hundred years of its, of its existence, um, of the way that uh, it was litigated by judges across the country who had uh, a, a very zealous reverence for intellectual property rights. Um, this is something that stoked, you know, the entire age of progress, and um, and and that's just irrefutable. The the, the benefits that we reaped from that. Um, and so, you know, the main idea that makes our patent system unique, or it used to, unfortunately it's past tense, was the idea of rewarding the first to invent. And in 2011, Obama turned that on its head with cooperation from both parties in Congress. Many uh, of these politicians who were in the pocket of, of big business, big corporations who uh, had a huge in- interest in, in, huge interest in squashing um, independent uh, garage tinkerers and independent inventors. Um, they converted our system to be aligned with the rest of the world, to harmonize with international patent law by rewarding the first to file. And this has just been a huge boondoggle um, for large corporations that have massive armies of um, IP lawyers. You're obviously promoting this book right now, uh, but we're in the middle already of 2016. What are you focusing on uh, in the days and weeks ahead, and are there any particular candidates that you like more than others in the Republican field? Yeah, um, this question has come up a lot, and I always make people mad at every election cycle um, because I, I'm i not on any team. I'm on team conservative, if anything. I want to have the, the most conservative candidate possible, a person who is most credible when he pays lip service to limited government and constitutional principles. And unfortunately, there are too many clowns in the Republican Party um, whom, who, who, for whom I ask the question that Hillary asked, what difference does it make? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't like Jeb Bush for um, many core reasons that have to do with education and national security, common core, amnesty, and uh, and a lot of the the lesser uh, Jeb Bushes are just um, sort of you know pale echoes of him. I think that uh, Phyllis Schlafly really did put it well, and that has endured when she talked about a, a choice, not an echo. 
And um, that book, I think, was brilliantly highlighted uh, the the big money, big business, big government donors um, who have really controlled the the process of of picking these candidates. The name of the book is Who Built That? Awe-Inspiring Stories of American Tinkerpreneurs. And we've been speaking with its author, Michelle Malkin. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Take care. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.